Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. There comes a time when life presents choices and we must decide to refuse or seize the opportunity. After 21 years as Artistic Director of the Alliance Theatre, Susan V. Booth will leave Atlanta to become the artistic director of the Goodman Theater in Chicago. Before her upcoming move, she managed to co-direct everybody. The opening play of the Alliance Theater's new season, and she joins us now via Zoom. Susan Booth, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's a pleasure to be here. You are co-directing this season opener with the wonderful actor and director Tanache Kajese Bolden. Please tell us what we should know about everybody. Everybody is based wildly loosely on the 15th century play, Everyman, which is one of the earliest recorded English language plays that is told in manner of a morality play. And it is about the transience of life, which as an usher at the theater will tell you when you come to see the show, is really a story about death. But because we know so little about death, we end up talking about life. And this is Brandon Jacob Jenkins' mashup of that story. And it is about our journey when we contemplate our own mortality and finally about what we value, why we value it, and how we express our value in a lived way. Every Man was written or is believed to have appeared around 1530 or so. And you mentioned it's a morality play, which meant it focused on decisions that were meant to teach the basis of Christianity, of the ideals 
of Christianity. In addition to the more inclusive title, how does everybody differ from every man? There's a wonderful line towards the end of the play where a person you meet as you're coming in and finding your seat and believed to be an usher who turns out to have some insider knowledge on the play and leads you through some steps in the play, says, finally, maybe the lesson is just be nicer to each other. Really listen. Maybe put aside judgment. And there's a simplicity to that statement. But if you look at Judeo-Christian practices through millennia, there's some common denominators. Be nice to each other is a common denominator in all practices. And I was struck by your explanation of contemplating mortality with actually being a celebration of life in the Jewish mourner's prayer. Death is never mentioned. It's fascinating how that Judeo-Christian tradition has this beautiful thread, this through line. Who are the main characters in the play? Well, it's a company of nine actors, and the characters include God and love and time and death. And then we have five somebodies. That is how they are identified in your program, in our script. And those five somebodies every night in front of the audience draw from a lottery. And from that lottery, one of them is determined to play the role of everybody. And the other four play every other character in the play. Everybody's family and friends and belongings. And it is a device that the playwright put in to make very palpable this notion of universality. No matter what we believe, no matter what faith we practice or what faith we eschew, none of us are getting out of here alive and we share that journey and that outcome. And so by making the cast choice in front of the audience be utterly random, the playwright underscores that fact. Mm, that is quite an undertaking for the cast. How did the actors prepare for all five roles? It's, it's really extraordinary. The play explains itself right up front. And so when we were auditioning actors and talking to actors about being in the show, there's no pretense. You essentially have to learn the entire play. And the actors that ended up in this production are fearless. They are humble. And what they do for one another just moves me like nothing I've ever seen before because they support one another. There's a practice in our tradition. If an actor is what we refer to as going up on lines, that they call out line or even sometimes word 
and a stage manager will feed them the line that they've forgotten or the word that they've forgotten. In our company, they just look at one another because between the five of them, everyone knows every word. Astonishing. You've said this show is filled with joy. Can you tell us a bit more about the humor and how the playwright tackles mortality in such a joyful way? It's funny because joy means different things to different people. When I belly laugh, that's how I encounter joy. There is a moment where death is discovered in the audience. God has decided that there have been some errors in God's plan, seemingly attributable to God's creation, everybody. And God needs some assistance, and God's dearest assistant is death. And so God looks out at the audience and says, death, death, reveal yourself. And this nebbishy accounting-looking guy <laughs> stands up and says, over here. And there is a lack of reverence in the best sort of way for these tropes of what God must look like, how God must behave. Time is portrayed by a nine-year-old girl. All of your reverent expectations get turned upside down in a way that is, I find, joyful and freeing. Mm. I love that you haven't gone with the cliched Grim Reaper to be death or, you know, no Ingmar Bergman seventh seal kind of stuff. <laughs> well, I will, I will tell you, death tells the five somebodies that they are all going to have to make an account to God. And it is a journey from which they will not return. And they all beg and plead and say, could I at least take someone with me? And what he does finally say to them is, if you can find someone to go with you, I'll allow it. But, you know, good luck on that. And you have until I come back. And he's, death is asked, well, where are you going and how long will you be gone? And death says, I just have to put on my traveling clothes. <laughs> And so you you might have already reached into what death's traveling clothes end up looking like. Okay. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Susan V. Booth, the outgoing artistic director of the Alliance Theater and co-director of their new production of Everybody. The Alliance and the Center for Ethics at Emory will present a series of post-show conversations. What are some of the topics of these discussions? While there are stated topics, the desire is to open the dialogue to meet people where the play leaves them. Anytime you take on a play about mortality, you have to be elastic in your audience's response. 
it's a deeply personal conversation. Certainly we'll be leaning into what are the different faith traditions that are nominally represented in this story? How does this story align with Buddhist fables, which every man is thought to be the original 15th century. Every man is thought to be perhaps itself an adaptation of a Buddhist fable. So there will be discussion about these different practices and what these practices teach us about impermanence and transience and mortality, but also we'll be leaning into gender and cultural definition because when five actors of diverse identities are randomly selected for a preset text, a lot of those expectations get upset in ways that I find really delicious. <laughs> I saw that 30 audience members will be able to purchase seats on stage. Why did you want to offer on stage seating? When we started talking about what the environment was for this play, it became really clear to my colleague Tanache and I that we thought of it as a ritual. We didn't think of it as a traditional work of theater where the audience sits over there and the actors stand up here. And we were compelled by the idea of a ritual space. Our beautiful Coca-Cola stage was always intended to lean into a sense of circle, a sense of community. And so what our brilliant set designer, Lex Liang, came up with was an idea of how we might continue the architecture of the theater onto the stage. And so we, we essentially complete the circle by having audience seating continue up on the stage. Oh, I love this. Metaphors everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> Susan, when did you decide that everybody should open this season? I had read it when it first came out back in 2017. Brandon Jacob Jenkins is a prolific and brilliant writer. This piece was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. What I was so knocked out by was the audacity of form. This play does not function in any way like a traditional play. Characters come out of the audience. Periodically, we bring the house lights up. Scenes are played completely in the dark as purely sonic experiments but it aggregates into something really moving. So I knew I loved the play. I knew it was a play that I, I wanted artists in Atlanta to be able to tackle and audiences in Atlanta to be able to meet. But I'm also keenly aware that we've lost our facility with shared dialogue. And I needed a piece that had an open door for everyone. And life and death is pretty unifying. Hmm. So did you know that you were moving on when you chose this play to be the season opener? 
No, I did not. Ah. I did not. And it's it's interesting timing, right? Because the play is very much leaning into the the Stoics notion of memento mori, right? Remember that you will die, which is not meant to be a hyper buzzkill. It's actually meant to be a reminder to live fully in present moment because change is the inevitability. And that's why this play is an ideal end to your 21-year tenure with the Alliance. It feels like the right project at the right time. Hmm. Let's talk about some highlights of your years with the Alliance. It would take several hours longer than this <laughs> show allows, but we'll, we'll highlight some. Immediately after you arrived at the Alliance, you did something unprecedented. I will never forget how you gathered a group of artistic directors from Atlanta's other theater companies. And that gesture signaled a new era and spoke volumes about collaboration rather than competition. What was the result of reaching out to the Atlanta theater community? Incredible colleagues, decades-long friendships. It was absolutely an act of selfishness. I wanted colleagues. I wanted friends in this community. And the only way that happens is you find out what people's values are. You find out what their passions are. And so the notion of producing a city series where we could highlight multiple aesthetics and multiple companies work was a way to really get in there and figure out what was an actor's express show? How did that work? How did seven stages roll? What, what was the motivating factor at dad's garage at Ethnic, And that was a wonderful working laboratory in which I could learn about Atlanta theater. Did you ever get any pushback from your board or funders saying, hey, we're supposed to be the big guy in town? I have had the most gloriously charmed relationship with a board of directors, and that's that's on them. There is a group of people, and there's many of them over the years as people have come and gone, who care first and foremost about the thriving of the Alliance Theater. And they have been allies and advocates and incredible supporters. Yes, there have been moments of, oh, okay, to describe that again. <laughs> but I think about some of the more audacious journeys we've taken over the years and how gladly they've not just come along for the ride, but been champions of those choices in their own communities. You love baseball. I do and love you're, baseball. I know. I've sat with you at games. And your stats are impressive, Susan. <laughs> with the Alliance, you produced... 
85 world premieres, including six musicals that went to Broadway. You set a standard for theater education, including the establishment of theater for the very young, which is to say babies. I can only imagine, as you close your eyes, so many different images of the past two decades just appearing before your eyes. What are some things of which you are most proud? You brought up the educational programming, and the thing that's critical to to know there is that none of that would have happened without the leadership of Chris Moses. The breadth of vision that he has in terms of what world-class quality arts education can do to change lives is a calling, quite simply a calling. And Chris with a runway is unstoppable and has been just the most treasured friend and colleague all these years. I look at the work that the Alliance does in that space. I look at federal Department of Education support for our early childhood literacy efforts. I look at the work that we do in that space that is never simply about creating a performance, but about creating a change in a student's life, a child's life, an educator's life, a family's life. And I am beyond proud and so delighted that Chris continues his leadership role with the theater. He's unstoppable and the reason we have the deep, deep roots that we have in the education space. Susan B. Booth, the outgoing artistic director of the Alliance Theater and co-director of their new production of Everybody. Susan is leaving the Alliance after 21 years to lead the Goodman Theater in Chicago. We'll discuss more of her legacy in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. If you are just tuning in, my guest is Susan V. Booth, the longtime artistic director of the Alliance Theatre and co-director of their new production, Everybody. 
During her time at the Alliance, Susan never lost sight of encouraging young playwrights and young actors. Here, she discusses the Candida playwriting competition. I love the fact that if you look at the list of alums, if you look at the pool of finalists each year and the winners over the 18, 19 years of that program, it is a complete who's who of the American theater. And yes, there's some wonderful sidebar additional successes with folks who've gone on to win Tonys as screenwriters and Emmys as television writers. But what I'm most delighted by is this deep, deep bench of writers for the American theater who had their first professional production at the Alliance and were treated as seriously as vetted senior members of our field. Their work was given the same consideration, the same production values, and the audience met and continues to meet that work with such curiosity and respect, it knocks me out. Bringing on Pearl Clegg as playwright in residence, and then Mellon, it was it? Her title now is Distinguished Artist in Residence. The Mellon Foundation gave us the fantastic opportunity to make her writer in residence for several seasons. When that funding sunsetted, there was never any question her relationship with the theater would change. It was far too additive and she was far too transformational for our institution to consider ever not having her. And so not only did we ask her to stay, but changed her title to Distinguished Artist in Residence. Oh, and she has distinction. And of course, that collision project she created, it was brilliant. The opportunity to have 20 young people get their lives changed every summer as they intersect with a writer of Pearl's caliber, Patrick McCollery, who is the unsung hero of that program as its director every year. And then these amazing moments. There was a year, a few years back, where the piece was based on John Lewis's graphic novel. And John Lewis came to see the performance and met every single one of those kids and thanked them. Oh, it's an extraordinary testament to, again, theater not for the sake of ornament, but theater for the sake of impact and change. For your 10th anniversary, you chose to produce Into the Woods. Will you explain why? So I have this glorious kid. And <laughs> she was born in Atlanta, not that long after my husband and I moved here. And she has shared me with a job I feel fortunate to have and very much love doing, but that has sometimes meant I wasn't the most present of room mothers, we'll say. And I wanted very much to create a piece of work for her. And 
I have always loved Bettelheim's the uses of enchantment, his story, his work about fairy tales, and you can't not love Sondheim. Mm. So it felt like the right gift. Oh, and a gift we all got to share. Susan, having spoken about your inviting all of the other artistic directors into your tent was an example of inclusivity. In recent years, you have taken that even farther with really a self-examination of how best to serve and reflect the diverse community of Atlanta. Tell us about the importance of opportunities for BIPOC theater people. Our practice was created to be a democratic exercise of the people's narrative. That's what we were created to be. And somehow the American Regional Theater over time moved to a different sort of practice. And it was a practice that became, for economic reasons, exclusive to people who had resource, people who had access, people who had connections. And quite rightly, our tradition, our field, was called on that behavior and called on the structures that had built up at our theaters that essentially acted as prohibitive gates that kept people out. And yes, it is about what voices you put on your stage, but it's also about who do you have in leadership? Who do you have in management? Who sits on your board? Who's backstage as well as on stage? How are you truly making your work, your practice, your organizational, your organization an equitable place. And that work is nowhere near done, but it is work that the Alliance takes seriously and will be committed to as long as there is an Alliance theater. Mm. Okay, so we can quantify many of your achievements with the Alliance. Qualitatively speaking, you've not only made the Alliance, but Atlanta a better place. Susan, I'm absolutely thrilled for your next move. Mazel tov and congratulations on being named the artistic director for the Goodman Theater. I must also add that as your friend, parting is such sweet sorrow. Oh, Lois, I thank you for that. We have known each other a long, long time. I can always date our friendship by the fact that my daughter attended her first Seder at your home when she was actually, because she was born, she was a preemie, she actually attended her first Seder at your home before her due date. <laughs> she was always precocious. She was. She was eager to get to that Seder. Oh, 
Thank you again. It's been a gift to be here. And the reason has been the people. So thank you, Lois. Susan V. Booth, the outgoing artistic director of the Alliance Theatre and co-director of their new production of Everybody. The show is on the Coca-Cola stage through October 2nd. After 21 years with the Alliance, Susan is leaving to join the Goodman Theatre in Chicago as their artistic director. Her last day with the Alliance is September 16th. With gratitude and affection, we wish her the very best in her new role. Coming up, French-Algerian guitarist and vocalist Pierre Bensouzon discusses his album Aswan. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. After two years of concert silence due to the pandemic, many musicians have finally reached the other side and are back performing on stages across the world. Among them is guitarist Pierre Ben-Suzan. On March 12th, 2020, he was supposed to be our guest on City Lights ahead of his Atlanta concert, and then the world shut down. Now, the Algerian-born French-Algerian guitar virtuoso is back on tour for his long-awaited CD, Aswan. He joins us now via Zoom after a long postponement, Pierre Ben Susan, it's great finally to welcome you to City Lights. Oh, I'm thrilled. Thank you for having me, and I'm glad that uh, we are both very stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> persistent. We like to think persistent. We are persistent, exactly. You performed in our area at Eddie's Attic in March. Mm-hmm. How did it feel? to perform in Atlanta, the very concert you were supposed to have played two years ago. Was there something surreal about it? Edithetic one was, it was the very, very few shows I was able to do two years ago. So, you know, I had, um, in 2020, had a 110 concerts lined up. I was going to promote my new album as one. I was going to tour for five months. And after the fourth show, and Hedy's Hattic won one of them, I had to cancel everything else. So, in fact, Hedy's Hattic won the, the last before show I did two years ago before, before the world uh, shut down. When I got back in March this year, it was amazing because everyone in, in the staff there remembered that this was one of their very last concerts they did also, you know. So... You know, to play in front of an audience today and to tour this country and to give a a chance to live music to be in our lives again is very emotional for a lot of people, including to me. And I can feel that people are very 
touch to be together again, to come out. Some don't come out again. Some are still, are still quite reluctant. You know, they are fearing that COVID could still affect them. So I respect that, of course, completely. And those who come again and those who are, who, who take the chance, who brave the odds, you know, to, to be a part of the show. And myself, we're having a delightful time, really, you know. <laughs> Would you tell us the story behind the title of your album, Aswan? Well, when you hear it, the music of the word reflects to some places in North Africa or in the Middle East. It could be an Arabic word, in fact, there is an Arabic word sounding alike. And a lot of Arabic words have Celtic roots, mind you, you know, so it's funny because as one also sounds Celtic. in the title of this new album, a notion of unity, of everything is connected together. And it was long before the pandemic that this title came about. What was amazing is that the pandemic is, has completely put that word into the light because the pandemic showed us how interconnected we all are, how uh, our planet is fragile and vulnerable, how we are all depending on each other. And in fact, in my title, I wanted to show just that, the unity, the, the fact that uh, we are all interconnected and that everything is as one. Hmm. Your music transcends genre and classification. How would you describe the influences that went into creating your own style of music? And, well, I don't know when, you know, I think it's ongoing process. As far as I can remember, when I played the piano, I was always fooling around. Once I had uh, done my lessons, you know, uh, worked and studied what my teacher wanted me to study, I fooled around and played all kinds of things, singing, songs, uh, whatever came to my mind. When I picked up the guitar, I taught myself how to play. And I went straight to doing my own things, you know, writing my own songs, writing lyrics. Uh, uh, and then I discovered folk music and I mixed it with uh, the classical music I studied on piano. And then I, I went to British folk music and I started to listen to the guitar as an instrumental vessel. And it, I really had music in me that wanted to come out. I didn't know how to name it. I didn't know how to describe it. But as far as I can remember, my first record, which I did when I was 17, reflects just that. Half of the record is compositions already. And so then the, the, the vein was between folk and classical with elements of pop and jazz. 
And I think I just pursue that that track and uh, try to find a vocabulary, musical vocabulary, which fits my own uh, sensibility and my own experiences. So when people ask me, what's what music, what style of music do you play? I say, I don't play styles. I play music in my own way. <laughs> mm. Well, it's very complex and very rich in sound. Let's talk about a few songs on Aswan. Mm -hmm. Bach Angelus sounds jazzy. Yeah. Would you tell us more about this song? So it has, you know, it's a contraction between the Balkans and Los Angeles. The Balkans, because I, I really care for the music there. I care for the arrhythmic, the different rhythms they use and the way the music uh, person groups with those very arrhythmic uh, tempo, like three and a half, four, like, uh, f you know, seven, eight. Musicians will understand what I'm saying. And Los Angeles, because I love the, the smooth groove of LA, of the, the smooth jazz of LA and all that. And I grew up also listening to the soundtracks of the Romanian composer, soundtrack composer, Laszlo Schifrin. So, you know, it's a mix, and Laszlo Schifrin was from the Balkans, you know, so, and it reflects, completely reflects in, in, his, in his soundtracks. So, Balkangeles, I, I think, contains both, you know, it contains the, the groove of LA, which is very glamorous, and also this ex excitement, a little bit uh, frenetic that we hear in the music from the Balkans. I like it very much. I also really enjoy Vaudou. Uh, Vaudou, yeah. Of, yeah, yeah. From the very beginning, you have these alluring rhythm and styles, maybe flamenco on display. L'animal me mord, il est dedans, et d'un seul coup, il me met J'ai grandi dans la reine avec les lions Combattu pour la reine, moi le scorpion J'ai parié sur ta peau au jeu du désir Toi contre moi dans le noir Sometimes, you know, you know, it's funny because I do love all those uh, musical idioms, you know, I, I I feel as a musician and a lot of musicians will feel exactly the way, I, the way I do. We are sponges. We are not in our heart. We never look at music in genre. We look at music. Everything that contains a musical universe within is dignified, is, is worth giving it a listen, you know. So we are like, in fact, always fusioning sounds, cultures, roots, 
geography together. This is what I, I did for a long time since I was born, you know. And those things reflect in the music I play 60 years later. It's like things incubate for a long, long time sometimes. And they come out as if it was so natural, but they have been, in fact, in a sort of alchemy movement for many, many years. And when it comes out, it's fresh, it's new, it's ready. But it took it took a while to grow. It's like a, a plant which has been with seeds have been very deep, and and the plant took a long time to come to the surface of the earth. And I feel music for me is a bit like that. So in Corvodou, once again, it's a sort of collaboration between Eastern reasons, Celtic and Indian from India. Spanish, Hispanic reasons, you know, I don't, I cannot even say, I don't know. I don't, I'm not even interested in naming it. Why should I name it? I did it. It's there. People can hear it. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's like if I could describe with words, maybe, maybe I would have a problem then because, because the music is what we do beyond the words. This is because we cannot express it with words, that we do it with the notes and, and with all that abstraction of sounds and notes and reference and colors, you know. So that's my aim, you know, and I, of course, I totally respect the fact that when we are addressing to an audience, people, people need to see with words what we are trying to refer at with sounds and colors, but in fact, the words are just there for people to give them an incitement to go and listen. And once they listen, they don't need words anymore. <laughs> well, you sing on the track of Vodou. What do those words convey when translated to English? My wife wrote those words, and uh, those words uh, refer to a sort of devil that we are inside of us, and that sometimes takes a lead. You know, it's like we choose to feed the black, the, the more obscure, obscure part of us. And sometimes we understand this is not the right path and, and we change and we decided to feed the light which is in us. And I think, I think me, I'm going to speak for me and I would never speak for anybody else. I have both in me and it's my complete free will to choose one or the other, you know, to be a good or a bad person. And of course, those two notions, I know them by heart because I have been in both. So I know now why I'm choosing one and the implication of choosing one. And so this, this song is reflecting that. This song is reflecting that at the end of the day, we are in fact able to make a distinct choice of what we want to be. In the song, Without You, we hear scat. Why do you like to include this improvisational scatting in some of your songs? Well, improvisation is just a, a complement of the composition, in fact. It should not sound like an improvisation. It should sound like something which has been thought out and composed. Thank you. 
this is what Debussy used to say. He said, good music should sound like it's all improvised and a good improvisation should sound like it has been composed. And another friend of mine, a, a great jazz guy said, you cannot improvise a good improvisation. Those are notions which are very interesting because what is improvisation really? All the music I play comes from improvisations, come from imagination, come from letting myself go with the flow and no barriers and no instrument, no limitations. Let's just imagine what we want and the sky is the limit. And then you take the things down to your instrument and you understand the gravity of what you are. You know, you have to, you are confronted with your limitations, your technical limitations. And then this is when, in fact, all the work starts like, you put in fingers and in arrangements all your imagination, which has nothing to do with your guitar. You know, with my guitar, it's just a sound. And my guitar becomes an instrument and as an instrument should be able to convey all my imagination. So this is what I'm trying to do, you know, to twist my guitar so that it, it can contain my imagination. In Without You and other parts, there is always a moment in a music where I can go and wander into unknown territories, you know. Like Keith Jarrett used to say, I like to, to jump to an unknown territory and see how I react and what I do. I read something you said about the symbiotic character, the shared experience of performing music. You said it's not a monologue. From the moment that someone is listening, they are making what he hears his own. What would you like to think others experienced through your music, Pierre? Hmm. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure because this is the way people hear music is so personal. It's very, it's very delicate to try to, to name how people hear music. Of course, it's the reference are based on their experience, but the music already should contain within a sort of seed that's going to allow people to go in certain directions when they hear it. And then they make their own story with it. What I mean is that the listener is never only a listener. The listener is extremely active. In, in fact, the way we listen to music is like we, we change. We want to be changed. We want to have an experience with the music we listen to. We want to forget the present, the moment, our concerns, our preoccupations, our worries, our problems. And this is what one of the, the arts, which is music, is really good for that because it really helps people to stand the day-to-day -day life and to also abstract themselves from the reality and go to another dimension. And I think the music contains all of that. So I try to to play and to write and conceive music that is going to sustain several listenings. Like you don't listen to music only once. And if you listen to music five times and after the fifth time you say, I don't like this tune anymore, it's boring. You know, it's too predictable. I'm not, you know, it doesn't do anything for me. It's too bad. So in fact, music should be able to stand the proof of time and also to be seen at from different prisms, different angles, and still make sense from any manner you look at it. French-Algerian guitarist and vocalist Pierre Ben-Suzan from our conversation recorded earlier this year. His latest release, 
Aswan is available now. And more information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., friends, activists, and co-authors, Mayra Cuevas and Maria Marquardt will tell us about their new young adult novel, Does My Body Offend You? If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Kanavi. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.